Thursday, July 20th, 2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present the completed version of the saga of Shamgar, the Purple Dragon. Now, the first part of this biblical adventure was aired on September 4th, 2014's Hermetic Hour. And it has remained unfinished until the original manuscript was rediscovered in a box full of my papers. And now we can present the complete version of this Cecil B. DeMillish biblical epic from the Book of Judges. Shamgar's saga recounts how a Phoenician pirate who claimed to be descended from pagan gods becomes a judge of Israel and battles the Philistines, slaying them with an ox goad years before Samson used the jawbone of an ass in a similar manner. Shamgar almost becomes Israel's first king, but his magical ox goad is passed down to a future contender at the beginning of the common era. So, If you want to enjoy the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament from a Canaanite perspective, join us as Shamgar rides again. Now, as I said, this this epic uh, had had to wait until uh, until I recovered the original manuscript in longhand, which is in several notebooks. Uh, I wrote this, uh, this story uh, in over in Maui and then up in Santa Barbara while uh, while uh, my lovely producer and I were were vacationing. But anyway, uh, uh, what we can do tonight and what we should do is just do the complete story because. I, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask you people to dig back in the archives to back to September uh, uh, 14th, uh, in, uh, 2014. So let's let's redo the uh, the whole story, and and if we run a little over, we'll just stay with us. We'll get it all done. Hmm. Ah. Now, the first half, by the way is written in treatment style, which is first person. And uh, the second uh, is re- in regular novel styles in, in past, uh, you know, uh, past tense. So uh, I'm sure you'll be able to adjust to that. Uh, the Eastern Mediterranean Sea in the wake of a storm. Mountainous swells of dark water with a stiff breeze blowing. On a Sidonian merchant ship, The captain scans the shifting horizon. As the waves subside, he sees a ship bearing down on them, a great two-masted war galley with purple sails. Shall we fight? A sailor asks him. Fight the purple dragon? Are you mad? On board the war galley, Shamgar calls to his helmsman. We'll tie onto their stern. The helmsman disagrees. Our ram will foul their rudder. Well, boarding amidships in this sea will sink us both, Shamgar growls. He calls uh, to the ballista crew. Shoot a line to their mainmast. I'm going aboard. The purple-bearded giant grabs a trundle block and swings out over the angry sea to land on the pitching deck of the Sidonian merchantman. 
A beautiful girl wearing only a cloak and jewelry stands by the terrified Sidonian captain. She gazes wide-eyed at Shamgar. You are the purple dragon, she asks. The very same. And you? Princess Europa of God. What are you doing here? Well, my father sends me to marry the king of Cyprus. Do you want to? Well, I have to. What if I change your plans? She smiles. My father would be furious. Put your arms around me and hold tight. She runs to him and throws her arms around his neck. He leaps up and grabs the swinging trundle block. And when the ship goes up on a swell, he and the princess swing back aboard the war galley. The Sidonian ship slides down in the trough while the war galley rides up on a crest coming down to rip the Sidonian's hull with its great bronze ram. The heavy-laden merchantman sinks in minutes, going down with all hands. The galley slaves, chained to their benches, drown at their oars. Shamgar's hard face twists in pain as he watches them go down. On the war galley, Princess Europa clings to Shamgar. Take me, my lord, take me now. In front of the crew? Yes, well, this when it is witnessed. Shamgar shakes his head, not on a war galley at sea. She stamps her foot. You insult me. Oh, I'll make up for it. Then to his first officer, take her below. On their voyage back to Tyre, Shamgar's home port, Europa tells Shamgar that she is descended from legendary King Minos. She is a bull dancer. In her Philistine city of God, bull dancing is a religious rite the Philistines brought from their original home in Crete. Each year, at their summer solstice festival, the youths dance with the bulls until one of them is gored, and the king chops the wounded dancer's head off with the sacred double axe. How long have you been leaping over bulls, Shamgar asks. Well, since my first moon, ten years, I think. You tempt the gods, lady. Well, I always go first. It is the weary ones who die. And later, Europa finds him reading a papyrus scroll in his cabin. She looks down over his shoulder at the demotic script. The purple dragon reads Inkanaten, but you are a great warrior. Never put your trust in a warrior who loves war. The greatest warriors are those who try to avoid it, Shabgar says. Well, does the lion lie down with the lamb? Well, my mother was the war goddess Anath, and my father was the dragon of chaos. I seek to temper my ferocious heredity. Well, do you believe there is only one God? Shamgar nods. Yes, but it's never wise to say so. You are a strange man. That's the meaning of my name. I love you, my lord Shamgar, she whispers. To landward, the glowing green pillar of the goddess, standing before the high temple of Malkart, the Phoenician Hercules, shines like a beacon leading them into the sheltered harbor at Tyre. In a conference chamber of the counting house, Shamgar sits across the table from Abi Milki, the elected king of Tyre, who says, The king of Goth wants his daughter back, and he wants your head in a jar. Once she was on a Sidonian ship, well, that does not matter to the Philistines. Well, I could disappear. You'll have to. 
I will take an executed criminal's head, dye his beard purple, and seal it up in a jar. She can take it with her when she goes home. Shamgar frowns. I am afraid that will not work. Well, why not? Well, she will open the jar. She loves me. I'll be milky glowers at Shamgar for a long moment. Then you'd better convince her not to open that jar because I have another task for you. And I do not want the Philistines to know that you are still alive. Well, I'll do my best, Shamgar says. In the apartment provided for her entire, Europa gazes up at Shamgar with tear-filled eyes. I will keep your secret only on one condition, my love. Which is? That you will love me every moment until my people come to take me home, that you will pleasure me with all your strength and give me your seed again and again so that I may carry your life within me. Shamgar kisses her tenderly. I promise, he whispers, but no onlookers, please. A five-day and night sleepless marathon of love-making, wine-drinking, feasting, and creative debauchery leaves Shamgar and Europa exhausted, sprawled naked in the cushions of their love nest. Abby Milky shakes Shamgar and holds the severed head close to his face. The purple dragon wakes and stares bleary-eyed at the purple-bearded head. That does not look like me. But it does look like how I feel. The Philistines have arrived, Abby Milky says. You better kiss her goodbye and get out of here. Shamgar shakes her, but she only moans. He kisses her bare shoulder and staggers off toward the bath. That night, Abby Milky and Shamgar sit together in a private apartment, illuminated by torchlight. Both wear hooded cloaks and speak in low voices. Abby Milky explains Shamgar's secret mission. I have received a request from the Hebrew judge Ahud. He rules over the tribe of Judah the Benjaminites in a priesthood they call the Levites. Now they surround Jerusalem, but they do not control it. Ahud wants military assistance to fight off the Philistines, especially the Philistines of God. They confiscated the Hebrews' grain harvest. The Israelites are facing starvation. The Philistine Confederation has formed an alliance with Sidon. Your recent romantic adventure contributed to that evil. And now that the Egyptians have withdrawn, we do not want the Philistines expanding their influence over the inland tribes. So I am sending you as a confidential military advisor to Judge Ahud. Are these Hebrews capable of fighting against the Philistine army, Strongbar asks? Well, they have a mysterious weapon, a golden box that they brought out of Egypt. They say their invisible god lives in it. They carry it before them in battle. It kills people. Well, then why do they need our help? Now, let me introduce you to Ahud's messenger. The Phoenician king gets up takes a torch from a sconce and pulls back a curtain. The torch illuminates the disfigured face of a madman. He cackles with insane laughter. <laughs> Shamgar, son of an elf, the purple dragon. <laughs> this is Bezek, the parasite. He survived the holy fire of the ark and became their prophet, Abby Milky explains. 
but not before they cut off my thumbs and they cut off my big toes and then they cut off my foreskin. Well, does this arc really kill people? Shamgar asks Bizek. Suddenly the madman becomes quite sane. Only if it stands in bright sunlight. At night or on a cloudy day, it's just a box. And the Philistines know this. Well, it might still be useful, Shamgar mutters. But you are going to need other weapons. Abby Milky puts an iron spear point and an iron sword blade on the table. Hittite iron. We will land you two down Joppa. You and Bisek will lead a caravan inland carrying 1,000 of each of these. We're making the Hebrews a force to be reckoned with, Shangar observes. Yes, and you will stay with them to make sure that they do not misuse these weapons after the Philistines are vanquished. They would take Jerusalem. Now, Abby Milky nods. Ahud has declared that his Hebrews will make the temple of Melchizedek in Jerusalem a house for their one god in his box. No other gods allowed. If they succeed, it will start a series of wars that will go on endlessly. That's the same mistake Inkanaten made. I mean, Milky nods again. See that it does not happen. What do you think about that, Bezek? Shamgar asks the prophet. Bezek rolls his eyes. There is only one God, father, mother, son, and daughter, all are one. Shamgar nods approvingly. Yes, the one God has four faces. But what do you personally gain from this? I prophesied that Gath would be destroyed. I have a reputation to uphold. Shamgar turns to Abi Milky. And what do I get out of this? Well, it is said that Ahud's daughter is son of waste and broad of hip. Her breasts are the full moons in summer, and her eyes are like deep pools in the gardens of paradise. Shamgar nods reflectively. Oh, and dye that beard of yours black, Abby Milky says. Only a hood and his family should know who you really are. The scene changes. A rocky wilderness near near Gezer on the road to Jerusalem. Shamgar, his beard now black and dressed like a traveling merchant, plods along with the hobbling big Toldus Bezek, leading a long string of heavily laden donkeys. He approaches a Philistine guard post blocking the road. What have we here, an officer asks. Salt, Shamgar declares. A soldier raises the lid of a yoked hamper, tastes the salt, and says, it is salt. Well, if it's salt, you're going the wrong way. It's sea salt. Some people people prefer it, Shamgar says. Are you Hebrews? Bezek shows his thumb his thumbless palms. Hebrews, look what they did to me, to Shamgar. Are you? Well, I need to relieve myself. Would you like to watch? You are smuggling something, I know it, the officer says. Dump it all out. Wait, Excellency, Shamgar screams. I confess we are smugglers. The officer cracks a sly smile. What are you smuggling? Shamgar leans close and whispers, donkeys. As he offers two silver shekels, the Philistine officer continues to frown at him until Shamgar counts out the right number of coins. Then the officer smiles, takes the bribe, and says, pass on. By sundown, they approach the Hebrew camp of Judge Ahud. A camp guard challenges them. 
Hold, strangers, to clear yourselves. We are travelers from east to west, Bezek calls out. But what do you seek? The one true God, Bezek answers. Proceed in peace, the guard replies. And as they make their way through the camp, Shamgar praises the Israelites. They are all clean, everything is in order, the children all seem healthy and happy, and the women are even smiling. I do not think we can attribute all this to circumcision alone. Bezek answers. They obey the laws of God and they deal fairly with each other, but they are too proud to be exclusive, and they make their righteousness a fault. Otherwise, they would be perfect. Well, righteousness is a fault the Inland Canaanites could use more of. Well, coming from a notorious Canaanite womanizer, that is a remarkable statement. Shamgar gives Bezek a sardonic smile. I remind you that in our philosophy, sin is merely a lunar god. Shamgar and Bezek enter Judge Ahud's spacious tent. The leader of the Hebrews rises to greet him. Welcome, stranger. My humble abode is yours. Do you honor me with your hospitality, Lord Ahud? Shamgar bows slightly. You need not bow. There are no lords here, my friend. We are all free men under God's law. Shamgar replies, then I am the more honored. Of course, I know who you are, but how do you wish to be called among us? Call me Barzell, it seems appropriate. Man of iron, indeed it is. A strikingly beautiful girl enters and smiles modestly at Shamgar. My daughter, Jael, says, and, and to her, this is Barzell, our friend from Tyre. Is your heart of iron as well, she asks? Even the heart of iron would melt in the radiance of your beauty, my lady. She blushes and lowers her gaze with a secret smile. Oh, would you bring us wine and sweet meats, my dear? Bar- Barzell and I have weighty matters to discuss. Oh, uh, then turns to Bezek. Good evening to you, venerable. Would you excuse us for a time? Weighty matters you would hide from God, Bezek says. Well, sometimes you and I hear the voice of God differently. Good night, venerable. Ahud and Shamgar have finished a jug of wine between them and have moved their conversation to philosophical issues. Melchizedek, blessed our father Abraham, his temple belongs to the God of Israel and to him alone. But Melchizedek was a priest of El, the most high God of all the Canaanites and the and the Hebrews. And if you remove El and his lady from the temple, you will be constantly at war for the next thousand years. Well, God promised us this land, and we shall make it ours and his, Shamgar says. Your friends entire are worried about that. In exchange for helping you against the Philistines, they would like you to be more accommodating to the customs and beliefs of your neighbors. Our neighbors, Canaanites. Well, I'm a Canaanite. You're a Phoenician. A Phoenician is a Canaanite who lives on the coast. Well, what gods do you worship? I am of the Raphaim, Shamgar explains. My mother was the war goddess Anath, and my father was said to have been the dragon of chaos, whom you call Leviathan. But the only gods I worship are Father El and Mother Asherat, and their images stand in the center of that temple in Jerusalem. 
Ahud is smoldering. Raphaim, fallen angels, watchers, giants. I killed one of your great kings with my own hand. Shamgar smiles. Well, he was not a great king. He was a fat king. And you sneaked into his privy and stabbed him in the belly while he was sitting on the potty, which was a good strategy, but hardly an act of valor. Ahud holds a brooding stare for a long moment, then bursts into a hearty laugh. <laughs> I like you already, he says. Shamgar, still smiling, says, I thought you would. But tomorrow I'd like to inspect that holy ark of yours. It might be useful. Dahoud's face darkens. Have a care, Canaanite. I do not like you that much. Bezek sticks his head in the tent flap and says, Shamgar, they want to unload the weapons, and there is nothing but rocks under those bags of salt. Dahoud gets to his feet. His hand clutches the dagger in his sash. Go to the tent we have provided for you and be gone by morning. On his way out, Shamgar encounters Jael in conversation with a black-robed, dark-faced desert chieftain. The Bedouin gives Shamgar an angry look and spits at him. Oh, please, Lord Heber, this is our friend Burzell from Tyre, Jael intercedes. I know who he is, and I know what he is, and I spit on the whore who mothered him. If you knew who mothered me, you would loose your bowels and wet yourself, Shamgar replies, and turns his back on Lord Eber. In his borrowed tent, the purple dragon is packing his meager belongings. Jail enters and comes to him. Please, Shamgar, do not abandon us. You must save us from the Philistines. That is what I believe my king and your father wanted me to do. Obviously, neither my king or your judge wants me to save you, so I'm going. Perhaps the Philistines stole the weapons. No, there never were any weapons. I know that now. She moves to him with tear-filled eyes and grips his shoulders. Please, Shamgar, you're the only hope we have. Your father wants to put that golden box of yours in the temple of Jerusalem. That will touch off a string of wars and will go on forever. I want no part of it. I am, I am leaving. But you believe in one God, a just and merciful God over all and everything. Yes, but not the way your father does. You do not understand. After Joshua the conqueror died, we tried to accommodate your gods, and we lost one tribe after another because your great elf, only presides over the lustful and ruthless gods and goddesses your people worship. He does not rule them. Now we have only two tribes left that keep the faith. If we make the temple in Jerusalem ours, we can win back the lost tribes of Israel, and Moses' great vision will survive. Someday we can share our covenant with all humankind, but now we have to restore it and preserve it. This was what my father was trying to explain to you. When you're right about Father El and Mother Asherah, they only preside. They do not rule. And thus, we have perversions like the Baal-Pyor cult and venereal disease and petty tyrants and injustice and far too much human sacrifice. I agree with that. Her eyes are wet with tears of joy. You do understand. Shangar turns and holds her shoulders. Does this come from your heart or is this your father speaking? It comes from my heart, and God lives in my heart. Is there room in your heart for me? Yes, if you will join us and help to save Israel. Shamgar takes her in his arms. I must consult with my own divine lights, he tells her. Your heavenly father? No, my hellish mother. And do not marry anyone until I return. I promise, she says. 
and seals her vow with a kiss. And high on a barren hilltop, Shamgar stands before a heap of stones he has erected as an altar. He raises his hands skyward as the pungent smoke from a roasting calf rises to the clouds. Come off, my mother. I bring you meat and fat and blood. Great goddess of war, hear me. The empty hills echo with his shout. Shamgar becomes aware of a presence standing behind him. He turns to confront his mother, Anath, the goddess of war. She is a tall, strong woman in black iron armor with an eagle helmet and a blood-red cape. She wears a necklace of shrunken heads and a girdle made from withered human hands. Her eyes have a ferocious glow, and her voice resonates like a swarm of locusts. I have not heard from you in years, my son. Why do you call upon me now? I need your help, mother. To fight for that overblown upstart Jehovah? Yes, and his people. Dagon and his people? Shamgar nods. Not that I favor Jehovah, but the battle would be entertaining. There has been too much peace of late. I must do this alone. I will need a weapon. That is for Kusor, the craftsman, to provide. He will forge the weapon for you and teach you its use. But give no heed to anything else he may tell you. Well, where do I find him? Well, that has been arranged. Thank you, Mother. I am in your debt. Anath smiles thinly as she points to her necklace and her girdle. One of these heads and two of these hands will be yours someday. Make me proud to wear them, and your debt is... Shamgar descends to find Bizek sitting on a boulder at the bottom of the hill. Come on, you have to meet old Tubal Cain before dark. Tubal Cain? Well, you Canaanites call him Kusor the craftsman. Shamgar frowns. You know too much, old man. I know just enough. Now let's be going. Daylight wanes. The dying rays of the sun illuminate the entrance to a deep cavern. Inside the cave, Bezek lights torches. He and Shamgar proceed downward into the bowels of the earth toward a faint sound of hammering far below. Finally, they come to the subterranean workshop of Kusor, the craftsman god. Bezek waits outside while Shamgar enters. The burly blacksmith looks up from his forge. With his bare hand, he takes the red glowing iron weapon out of the bed of coals and plunges it into the quenching bath. A hissing cloud of steam rises. He holds up a long, pointed iron spike with a sharp hook curving backward. It looks like an ox goad, but it is much more than that. Why an ox goad, Shamgar asks. So you can sneak into Goth disguised as a drover of oxen. Well, that's a good idea. Good ideas are my stock and trade, Kusor said, as he fits the goad to a jewel-encrusted golden shaft. All the planetary jewels, including the sun. You will keep this power source covered with leather until you need it. And I have something else for you, too, he says. Come over here. Shamgar follows Kusor to a standing figure of Shapshish, the sun goddess. 
Mishore takes a gold medallion from around the idol's neck. The piece is three inches in diameter with a crystal set in its center. This is the eye of Resh. It harnesses the power of the sun. To empower the ox code, the ox code has its own empowering jewels. The eye of Resh serves another purpose. Shamgar gives him a questioning look to destroy the city of God. Shamgar takes the medallion. My mother said you would teach me the use of these weapons, but that I should heed nothing else you might tell me. What does she mean by that? The big blacksmith cracks a sly smile. Oh, she's afraid I'll tell you who your father really is. My father was not Lotan, the dragon of chaos? Kusura laughs. <laughs> Did you actually believe that? Well, why would she lie to me? Well, because she's afraid gods and men would learn the truth. Shamgar becomes angry. Who is my father, he demands to know. Kusura matches his tone. If I tell you, you must swear to keep the secret to yourself alone on pain of death, should you break your oath. Shamgar spits in his palm and clasps hands with Kusor. I do so swear. Now, who is my father? I am your father, Shamgar. When Shamgar recovers from the shock, he asks, why should that be such a secret? Because neither gods nor men would ever sanction a union between the goddess of war and the god of industry. Together, your mother and I can destroy the world. But why would you want to? Well, because we are what we are. Then why are we helping Jehovah? Well, because he enjoys war as much as we do. Now remember, you are never to reveal our secret. Well, you need not worry. I would be ashamed to do so. From the dusty road outside the walled city of Goth, Shangar and Bezek heard their slowly moving oxen through the open doors of the massive Barbican. And as they pass through the gatehouse, two guards make way for them while the magistrate counts their livestock and gives them a ticket. He waves them toward the marketplace. Well, so far so good, Shangar mutters. Now inside the walls, they have a better view of the city. The tallest building is a great stone tower, 15 cubits high with no windows. However, it does have a scaffolding that reaches the top. That's the granary, Bezek says. That's where they store all the grain they confiscated from our harvest. Next to the granary is the palace in Minoan style, with the temple and the amphitheater adjacent. The marketplace fronts the main gate. The houses are backed up against the city walls. We'll sell the oxen and then lay low until after nightfall, Shamgar says. The crescent moon rides high in the dark sky as Shamgar climbs the rickety scaffolding to the roof of the granary. Once on the wood plank roof, he selects a center point and uses his ox code to drill a hole. He fits the eye of rush over the hole and covers the golden bezel with a handful of dirt, leaving only the crystal exposed. But halfway down, the rotten scaffolding gives way, and he falls a dozen feet to the ground below, where he lies unconscious. He wakes the next morning with a splitting headache to find himself changed spread eagle, 
to a massive oaken door inside the private apartment of Princess Europa. She wipes his forehead with rose water and kisses him tenderly on the lips. Shamgar, my lost love, at last you have come back to me. Shamgar struggles with his chains. Does anyone else know who I am? No, my love, you are my secret guest. Secret prisoner, now loose these chains. She gives him a coy smile. I will not have you leave me again. I am carrying our child, my love. Three months since my last moon. She opens her gown and stands naked before him. Am I not more voluptuous? You still love me, do you not? Shamgar seethes with frustration. Yes, you're beautiful and I love you, but we have to leave this city. We have to leave now before high noon or we'll die. Now loose these chains. Oh, Shamgar, I want you to stay with me. When I tell my father I'm carrying your child, he will forgive you and make you a prince. That does not matter. He looks out the window toward the sun. In less than an hour, this city will be destroyed. You're just saying that because you want to leave me again. No, I want to take you with me. She turns her back to him and walks to the wide window overlooking the amphitheater where people are already cheering the bow dancers. I will place your beautiful jeweled oxbow here on the windowsill. See how it sparkles in the sunlight. Trumpets sound from below. Now they call me to leap the sacred bull. My father and the people expected of me. You may watch me from the window. She blows him a kiss and hurries out of the apartment. Shamgar growls as he struggles with his chains. Naked and glistening with oil, her long brown hair blowing free. Princess Europa enters the arena. At the sight of her, the crowd cheers. Flowers fall all around her, and she gracefully dances toward a huge white bull with long, sharp-pointed horns. The bull snorts and paws the earth with his hooves. In the royal box, her father, the king, sits amid his courtiers, looking down at his daughter with pride. High above them, the sun climbs toward high noon. In Europa's apartment, Shamgar prays to Anath, Mother, help me! Help me save her and my child. Anath's resonant voice replies, I am not a goddess of mercy. I will save you alone. The ox goad shimmers with a blinding light. Shangar's chains fall away. He races to the window and grabs the sparkling weapon and leaps from the window down into the shrubbery outside the arena's wall. In the arena, Europa runs toward the bull. Above the granary tower, the sun has reached mid-heaven. On the roof, the eye of rush begins to flash with concentrated sunlight. Inside the tower, the bright beam lances down through a haze of green, green dust. In the arena, Europa leaps a split second too soon. The bull tosses his head and catches her in midair with his horn. He tosses her like a broken doll to fall in the sand where she lies writhing in agony. The crowd is horrified and moans in unison. The king stares wide-eyed and open-mouthed. Shamgar leaps down into the arena and runs to her. Her father, the king, takes up his sacred double axe and quickly descends from the royal box. Both men stand staring at each other. From opposite sides of the dying woman on the ground between them, neither speaks. Finally, Europa gasps, Please, father. The king chops his daughter's head off. Both Shamgar and her father fall on their knees and weep. There is a flash, brighter than the sun, a clap of thunder. The earth shakes. 
and everything vanishes in a cloud of dust and debris as the greenery tower explodes. Two miles beyond the still-smoking ruins of Goth on the road to Jerusalem, Shamgar and Bisek trudge along on foot. Shamgar broods in silence. Something glimmers in a bush by the roadside. Shamgar stops to pick it out of the foliage. It is the eye of Rush. That is an omen, Bisek says. Not a good one. I hope we never have to do anything like that again. Oh, they were Philistines. They were people, Shamgar mutters. And I hope the other Philistines don't find out what that we did it. Shamgar's expression is even darker. Oh, they will. You can be sure of that. Why? Well, because you are a Hebrew prophet, and you prophesied that Gath, Gath would be destroyed. Upon returning to the Hebrew camp, Shamgar hears a woman scream and enters Ahud's tent to find Heber the Kenite trying to rape Ahud's daughter, Jael. Shamgar seizes Heber by the, and hooks his ox goad into the Bedouin's neck, ready to tear his head off. No, please, Shamgar, do not kill him. My father promised him, me to him. Disgusted, Shamgar releases Heber and punches him in the nose. Leave this camp and do not return. If I see you again, I'll kill you, he says. Heber slinks out of the tent, giving them a look of murderous hatred. Why did you not tell me of this, Shamgar asks Jael. Oh, I was so ashamed. I was hoping you would vanquish the Philistines so we could renegotiate my betrothal. The Philistines are vanquished, and I have just renegotiated. Now I will have a talk with your father. Shamgar confronts Ahud on the matter. You approved of that behavior of his? Of course not. But I should have known. After all, he is a Canaanite. Well, I'm also a Canaanite, and my manners are much better. Now that Heber is no longer a contender, I will petition you for Jael's hand in marriage. She is dedicated to serve God in ways you may not understand. Well, I understand you have some unusual hold over her. She despised Heber that she was willing to marry him for your sake. No, she would have married him to serve God. As you told Bezek, God speaks to you in different ways. God has a special hold over Jael. She may wish you to be circumcised. Was Heber going to have himself circumcised? Ehud frowns darkly. Well, she had no choice in that matter. Shamgar nods. I will accept her as she is, and I will comply with her wishes. Jael comes out from behind the curtain and rushes into Shamgar's arms. Oh, Shamgar, I love you. You have made me the happiest woman on earth. They hold their embrace until Bezek enters the tent. His face is ashen. You were right, Shamgar. My prophecy has done us in. The Philistines are marching on us with a mighty army. They will be upon us in two days. Shamgar pauses to contemplate the news. Then he turns to Ehud. You and I are going to have to come to another understanding. Plane of battle, the small, poorly armed Hebrew contingent, which can hardly be called an army, stands in a ragged line, holding a front across a broad dry wash between rocky hills. 
It's a good position to stand off a frontal attack by infantry. They can be funneled in and kept off the flanks. The Philistines cannot use their chariots because the plain is strewn with rocks. The Hebrews have one more advantage. The sun is behind them. Shamgar stands just behind the first rank with Bezek. Behind them is a deep pit from which long rope bridles extend to teams of oxen with their drivers waiting on either side. 400 yards away, at the sound of trumpets and to the beat of huge kettle drums, the bronze and iron-armored Philistine army, 5,000 strong, begins to move forward like a giant glistening centipede. Shamgar, holding his ox goad and an oxhide shield, strides out in front of the Hebrew line and stands alone, waiting. The Philistines halt their march within shouting distance of the Hebrew line. I am Shamgar, the destroyer of Goth. Send out your champion, Shamgar calls. The army whose champion dies will quit the field. In answer, the Philistine archers loose a flight of arrows at him. Shamgar catches four on his shield, and the rest hit the earth behind him. Still, he stands his ground as the Philistine pikemen advance. Just as a phalanx of spear points are about to reach him, there is a rumbling behind the Hebrew line. Something very bright and dazzling is rising up out of the deep pit, being hoisted by the oxen. The midday sun shines down upon the Ark of the Covenant. The Hebrew warriors fall to their knees and hide their faces. The Ark has a nimbus of fire around it. Lightning crackles between the wingtips of the cherubim. Then, with a crack of thunder, lightning snakes out like a giant glowing blue spider to dance over the ranks of the Philistines, killing them by the hundreds, while the rest flee in panic. All the while, Shamgar stands with his ox code held high like a lightning rod, the power running through him, his hair standing on end, laughing with the booming voice of a god. I am Shamgar, champion of Israel. But there is no celebration for the returning hero and his warriors. The Hebrew camp has been invaded, and Jael, Shamgar's bride-to-be, has been abducted by Heber the Canaanite and his desert raiders. And that is where, back in September of 2014, because the manuscript, the rest of the story, had been misplaced and has since been found. And so now we can pick up the tale again. And Shamgar called together the best and bravest of his warriors and set out in pursuit of Heber and the Kenite raiders. Bezek, the mad prophet, rode with him in his chariot as they followed the tracks of the desert horsemen. As they rode, Shamgar questioned the mad prophet about his fiancée's abduction. Ahud put up no resistance to Heber's raid. He let that scoundrel take his daughter, my intended bride. Why? the crippled dragon asked. Well, they had a deal, Bezek answered. I canceled Heber's deal. Heber told Ahud that you had been defeated and killed by the Philistines. Well, did Jael go willingly? No, she protested, but Ahud declared that her life belonged to God and that it was God's will that she go with Heber. I know he had more than a father's hold over her. What was it? 
Oh, he had promised to sacrifice her to Jehovah. What? Shamgar was flabbergasted. After he had gutted the king of Moab in the privy, we had a ferocious battle with the Moabites. Ahud promised Jehovah before witnesses that he would sacrifice the first living thing he saw when he returned to his camp if God would grant him victory. Well, of course, he thought it would be a tethered livestock, but instead, Jehiel ran out to meet him. So he informed her that she should prepare herself to be sacrificed. And that is when I intervened. I had Jehiel stripped naked before the council of elders. They were awed by her beauty. Jehovah spoke through me as I declared that this creature had not been created to be slaughtered like an animal. She was of more value to Israel alive than dead, and that she should be kept alive to be used in an alliance that would benefit her father's tribe. Ahud was pleased with this, and he made Jehiel swear before the council that she would henceforth obey anything he commanded, no matter how sinful or unrighteous it might seem to her. Shamgar's expression was grim. Now I understand. You do, if you do get her back, she will still be bound by that oath, Bezek offers. I'll take that risk, Shamgar mutters, as he reigns in the team. The sun is descending in the west. Ahead of them, the narrow mountain road is blocked by a pile of fallen boulders. Well, I'll say one thing for Heber, he's clever. That rockfall would take us all night to clear. Shamgar dismounts the chariot and scrambles up over the rocks, climbing high up the hillside to a vantage overlooking the roadway beyond the rockfall. In the distance, he can see the Kenite raiding party. They are erecting their tents. Shamgar returns uh, to his men. Bezek, you stay here with the horses and the chariots. The rest of you follow me. We'll go on foot and attack their camp at midnight. Meanwhile, Heber and his Kenites have camped for the night. In his tent, Heber sups with Jael, partaking heavily of wine. He brings in two young boys to play the lute and the drum while Jael dances for him. Her performance is so seductive that at her first caress he spills his seed before he can mount her and falls in a drunken stupor to lie unconscious on the carpet. At midnight, Shamgar sounds his war horn, and his Hebrew warriors rise from their hiding places surrounding the enemy camp and charge the sleeping Kenite raiders, setting fire to their tents and smiting them with lance and sword as they run to escape the flames. Inside Heber's tent, the Kenite chieftains still rise inert upon the rug. Jael finds a long bronze tent peg and a heavy mallet. Placing the point of a peg in Heber's ear, she hammers the spike through his skull, pinning him to the carpet. Shamgar enters the tent, and she rushes into his arms. Oh, my darling, you have rescued me, Jael declares. One of Shamgar's men holds a lantern, eliminating the inert body of Heber. Shamgar kicks the corpse, then notices the spike pinning the dead man to the rug. Let's get out of here, Shamgar says. Well, what about him? The warrior glances toward Heber. Oh, he can stick around but burn the tent, the purple dragon grunts. And Shamgar returns to the camp of the Judean Hebrews and marries Jael. So much favor does he find among the people that they elect Shamgar judge of the tribe of Judah. And although his father-in-law, Ahud, still claims the title of high judge of Israel, both Ahud's, but then Ahud's heart 
hardens against Shamgar, and he plots against his son-in-law. He conspires with the Benjaminites and the Levites, who, along with the Judeans, were the last of the twelve tribes who professed loyalty to Jehovah. In all this, Shamgar's strongest ally is his friend, the mad prophet Bisek. And so it comes to pass that the Judean wife of a prominent Benjaminite allegedly went a-whoring and was caught or entrapped by a score of demonic cultists, secret worshippers of Belial, who had their way with her before strangling her and dismembering her body. Then, then, as was their foul custom, they distributed her body parts to members and friends of their, of their cult. Her head, with the sign of whoredom cut on the forehead, was sent back to her Judean father, who displayed it in gr- the gruesome memento before Shamgar and the council when he brought charges against the Benjaminites. Witnesses were called and the whole story was unfolded. Can the perpetrators of this outrage be identified, Shamgar asked, looking hard at the representatives from the tribe of Benjamin. From beside him, Ahud mutters, Don't embarrass them. No crime has been committed. Shamgar gives his father-in-law a savage look. It may not be a crime, but it's an atrocity. Not in the eyes of God, Ehud replies. Adultery is punishable by death, and there is no commandment against eating a slaughtered heifer. Is your daughter a heifer? No, but your wife may be, Ehud replies. Is that a threat? Well, let's call it a warning. Shamgar turns to Bezek. What saith the Lord on cannibalism, venerable? It's a cursed abomination. He inflicts us punishment upon the unrighteous. Then their only crime is apostasy. Well, it would seem so, Bezek confirms. And so Shamgar orders the 20 followers of Belial arrested and brought before him. He sentences 10 of them to death and the rest to imprisonment in a deep pit with only the dead bodies of their fellow cultists for sustenance. And when Ahud and the elders of Benjamin protest, he reminds them that cannibalism is the Lord's punishment upon the unrighteous. And the followers of Belial are certainly unrighteous. Shortly following this session, Shamgar grants audience to a Phoenician leather merchant who privately reveals himself to be an agent of King Abimilki of Tyre. The Purple Dragon explains how he was betrayed by King Milky in the matter of the smuggled iron weapons. But the merchant is quick to explain that the betrayal was the work of one of the king's ministers, a Sidonian, who was in the pay of the Philistines. He is outside of the tent in chains, awaiting Shamgar's justice. Throw him in the pit with the cannibals, Shamgar barks to his guards. And with that settled, he calls for wine and sweetmeats to refresh his guests. Now tell me, what does my lord Milky wish with the judge of the tribe of Judah? It has come to us entire that the Hebrews seek to place their golden box and install their one and only God in the temple of Melchizedek in Jerusalem. Your victory over the Philistines has reestablished the reputation of that spiritual weapon. The Jebusites of Jerusalem have appealed to us for military and even magical assistance. They might be willing to remove their tribal gods, but if Father El and Mother Asherah are expelled from the temple, all Israel will rise in revolt. It is well known that your ark is is only dangerous in sunlight. A night attack would overwhelm you. Shamgar replied, 
will inform your master that I am still his loyal captain and that I share his concerns and that I will do my best to see that the Holy Father and Mother remain in their ancestral home. My father-in-law, Judge Ahud, still has much power and influence among the Judeans, Levites, and the Benjaminites. He imagines that his war god, Jehovah, is the Most High God, the God of Abraham and Melchizedek, which we know to be Father El. Ahud and his Levites, who have nothing of the goddess, whom they believe is the source of all evil, and whom we know to be the other face of El. They, I have tried to explain to Ahud that together El and Asherat are the one great oversoul, which is both male and female. But alas, he and even his daughter, my beloved wife, refuse enlightenment. And so it came to pass that Ahud and Shamgar, accompanied by the council of the elders of Israel, visited the temple in Jerusalem. And the priest king of the Jebusites, who was called Melchizedek after his ancestor, who had given the first communion of the elements to Father Abraham on this very spot, led them to the stone staircase to the portico of the temple. And the temple was a huge square stone building, 40 cubits high, with a monolithic entrance flanked by two stone pillars decorated with coiled serpents upon which were inscribed letters in an ancient alphabet Shamgar had seen in the temple of Melkarta Tyre. The laws of old, Melchizedek explained, inscribed by Enoch before the flood. The ten affirmations, Bezek added. Pagan abominations, Behut sputtered. Jehovah gave us the Ten Commandments. And Asherat gave us these ten thou shalts, which, if we observed them, would make Jehovah's thou shalt nots unnecessary, the Jebusite priest king concluded as they entered the temple. Shamgar had seen the interior of the temple of Malkar entire, but this was much more ancient and primitive. The stone walls were raised against a wooden framework. Great beams of cedar rose at the corners, supporting the rafters of the wooden roof. The floor was a great mosaic depicting a seven-pointed star. At each point stood the statue and altar of the god or goddess of one of the seven tribes of the Canaanites of Israel. In the center of the star, rising from the mosaic images of the sun and the moon, were the tall, slender images of Father El and Mother Asherat. And on the far western wall, was a niche for the holy relics, a chalice made from a human skull and a golden flagon. The Jebusite Melchizedek poured fermented honey from the flagon into the silver cup inset of the skull chalice. He handed the goblet to Shamgar, this Rav Shemesh, he declared. The purple dragon elevated the goblet to honor it before partaking. As he lowered the ancestral chalice, Ahud stepped forward, but the Jebusite restrained him. You are not of our blood, he declared, and the goblet was refilled and passed to Bisek. The torchlight interior of the temple was impressive, but Shamgar was very concerned over the obvious condition of the supporting members. As a mariner, he could spot dry rotted timbers and planking. He poked his dagger into some of the great cedar uprights and winced as he felt the point penetrate, as if going through dry papyrus. He knew that one violent storm or a minor earth tremor would bring down the whole structure. Outside the edifice, the elders held council. 
Ahud was first to speak. We will remove and destroy all these idols and then place the Ark of the Covenant on a veil-shrouded dais between the sun and the moon. The Jebusite elders and those of the seven Canaanite tribes were shocked and enraged. They had been willing to let Ahud put the Ark in the temple, but not to displace all of the sacred images that had resided there for 3,000 years. Shamgar intervened. My venerable father-in-law has misspoken himself. What he means to say is that we will carefully remove all the sacred objects from the temple before we undertake repairs, because the temple is not a safe place for them or for the ark until it has been reinforced. In its present state, it is ready to collapse. What? Ahud shouts, this temple has stood since the days of Melchizedek and Abraham. It will stand for another 10,000 years. As if to emphasize his point, he beats the stone wall with his heavy staff. Solid as a mountain, he cries. But his blows have triggered a dangerous vibration within the stonework. With a rumble, the rotten timbers shoring up the inner walls give way, and the whole massive structure falls in on itself with a thunderous roar and a huge cloud of dust. When the dust settles, a wondrous discovery is made. Everything within the temple has been destroyed, even the pillars outside the portico, and yet the statues of Father El and Mother Asherat are still standing, defiantly rising up out of the rubble. It is the will of God, Bezek declares. The Elohim are subsumed in the holy family of the highest heaven. All gods and goddesses are now one. However, Ahud clamors up over the rubble and starts to swing his staff against the slender statue of the goddess Asherat. Shamgar catches the collar of Ahud's robe with the hook of his ox goad, jerking the old man back. You strike that statue and I'll kill you, the purple dragon growls. I'll remember that, Ahud snarls. I want you to, Shamgar grunts, because I will rebuild the temple, ensuring that all of Israel are welcome to worship within. What qualifies you to be a builder of temples, Ahud taunts? My patrimony, the purple dragon declares. You declared that your mother was Anath and your father was Leviathan. That hardly qualifies you to build a temple. <clears throat> Shamgar noticed that the elders were nodding. He knew that he must be in charge of the reconstruction if the goddess was to remain in the temple. I circulated that rumor to frighten my enemies when I was a privateer. My real father was Tubal Cain, he announced. No sooner did the words cross his lips than he realized that he had sealed his own doom. He had broken his oath to the god Kusor, his father. And so the great temple in Jerusalem was rebuilt with the help of architects from Tyre and cedar timber from Lebanon, the ark was moved in and housed as Ahud had envisioned, with Elion and Asherat rising on either side. The Hebrew Levites held their rituals on Saturdays, leaving the other days of the week for the priests of the Canaanite tribes. Animal sacrifice was permitted on the days reserved for the tribes that adhered to it, although many of the Canaanites were vegetarians, as had been all the children of El and Asherat and the Elohim before the great flood. <clears throat> Shamgar prospered as a judge of Judea, and Jael gave him three sons, who were named Shamat, Shamar, and Shamaz. 
And so wise was Shamgar's justice, and so great was his power, that the elders of all the twelve tribes, Canaanite and Hebrew, elected to crown him the first king of Israel. But his father-in-law, Judge Ahud, had coveted that honor and had waxed jealous of Shamgar, still calling him a blasphemous pagan in high council for keeping the image of the great whore standing beside the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. For his part, Shamgar knew that his doom would overtake him, and though he prayed to his divine father for forgiveness of his oath-breaking, Kusura would not answer his pleadings. Knowing that Ahud plotted against him, Shamgar sent his sons off to Tyre as wards of King Abimilki to be raised in civilization, educated and prepared for the leadership roles they might someday attain from Shamgar's legacy. For Bisek, the mad prophet, had prophesied that one of Shamgar's royal line would one day redeem all mankind, and shortly thereafter he was stung by a viper that had crawled into his bed, and the thumbless, toeless prophet died in agony. Then did the aging Ahud, filled with jealousy and bitterness, send a secret message to the high king of the Philistines in Ascalon, detailing his son-in-law's relation with the king of Goth's daughter Europa, his destruction of the greenery at Goth, his defeat of Goth's army by using the Arcus in an ambuscade, and revealing that this same Shamgar was about to be crowned king of Israel, and that he was in fact not a Hebrew, but a Phoenician from Tyre, a former privateer known as the Purple Dragon, and a vessel, and a vessel, an agent of King Abimelech, who was no friend of the Philistines. And the Philistines, learning of this, called to arms and began raising a mighty host to march against Israel, whereupon Ahud took secret counsel with his daughter Jael, Shamgar's wife and the mother of his sons, imploring her in the service of Jehovah to whom she was dedicated to poison her husband before he could be anointed king, thus saving Israel from a terrible war which would destroy their nation. Jael pleaded to be released from her obligation. Oh, if only Bezek were here to intercede with Jehovah for me. I believe Jehovah interceded with Bezek, her father suggested in a cryptic tone. I am the voice of the Lord Jehovah in Israel now, and I charge you as my instrument of judgment to make an end to this pagan usurper who would lead us to ruin. Jael nods her head and accepts the vial of poison her father has obtained from an Egyptian apothecary, which was warranted to be slow-acting but lethal beyond remedy. Thus, within the days of his anointing, did Shamgar fall gravely ill and take to his deathbed. And the elders of all the tribes gathered about his couch, and his wife Jael wept and rent her garments. A young girl named Deborah entered from Jael's bedchamber, carrying a small vial of Egyptian glass filled with a greenish liquid. I found this on my lady's vanity, my lord, she informed. One of the elders takes the vial and stops it and smells it. He wrinkles his nose in disgust and passes it on to the others. Ahud seizes the vial and turns on his daughter. Where did you get this? He shouts at her. Shamgar rises up. 
It came from the same basket as Bezex Viper, he reveals. Ahud continues berating Jael. She is my daughter, but she is a murderess. First Heber, and now Shamgar. We must seize her, take her out, and stone her to death. I will cast the first stone. Oh, I'm certain you would, Shamgar says. No, lay no hand upon her. She is the slave of an evil man and his evil god. But she is also the mother of my children and the love of my heart. One of our descendants will wear the crown of Israel that I will not live to wear. And if my death brings peace to Israel now, how much greater will be the kingdom when the Son of Man comes forth to claim his destiny? Hearing this, Jael bursts into tears. She grabs the vial from her father and drinks it, gagging on the bitter poison. Ahud turns his back on her and strides out of the room. Jael sits on the bed and takes Shamgar's hand. I will go with you, my dearest love, she murmurs. And thus, having swallowed more of the deadly filter in one gulp than Shamgar had received in a week, Jael preceded her lord to the back of beyond. Shamgar clung to life, for he had a final task to accomplish. He charged the elders to carry him north to Afaka in the Lebanon, to the sacred temple of the great goddess, where the headwaters of the river Adonis came forth in a cascade from a cliffside grotto to pour into the gorge below, from thence to flow toward the sea through steep banks where each spring the river runs blood red in memory of a god who must eagerly die. And so they bore the purple dragon thence and laid him on his litter beside the great cedar tree in which the palace of Tahutus, whom the Egyptians call Osiris, was once hidden. Shamgar rose from his cot and with his last full measure of strength strode to the great tree and drove his ox goat into the trunk. He turned to the elders and declared, Let him who would rule all Israel come forth and draw his scepter from the living heart of the land. For only thus will he be the one true king for all the ages. So saying, he fell dead at the foot of the tree. While high in the branches above, Shumal, the mother of eagles, took flight from her nest as the sky went black overhead, illumined by the spectral light of the storm god's crackling fire. Then did Ahud come forth to rail against Shamgar's prophecy, his long gray beard blowing in the rising wind. There is only one truth about this man. He was indeed the son of the great whore, and all else is lies. The so saying, he reaches forth it to lay hands on the ox code. At that instant, a jagged bolt of lightning crackled down through the branches into the haft of the ox code, striking Ahud dead as his beard bursts into flame. And for nine years following this prophetic event, the leaders and elders of Israel made pilgrimage to Afaka. And there were those who tried to draw the ox code, but none succeeded. And then in the tenth year, after two candidates had failed to draw forth the goad, a young man dressed in white, came forward and easily pulled the deeply embedded weapon from the heartwood of the great tree. We know you not. Who are you? cried the elders. I am Shamat, firstborn of Shamgar, said the youth. Then the elders knelt down before him and declared, You are the king of Israel. 
Shemot smiled upon him and replied, The time is not yet, he said. And when they had risen to their feet, he was gone, and the ox gold was gone with him. And to their further wonderment, the elders saw that there was no wound in the tree trunk where the ox gold had been lodged. In future, in the council chamber of the Sanhedrin, adjacent to the temple in Jerusalem, the voice of Jesus the Nazarene concludes his narrative. And to their further wonderment, the elders saw that there was no wound in the tree trunk where the ox code had been launched. The high priest Caiaphas leans back in his chair at the head of the polished cedar conference table. <laughs> Surely this must be the longest of your many parables, Rabbi. But if I may be allowed a pun, what is your point? Jesus holds a long object wrapped in bull's hide. All eyes around the table are drawn to it as he continues. I am of the house of David on my mother's side and a descendant of Shemat bin Shamgar on my father's. And what proof do you have of that, Caiaphas demands? Jesus unwraps the oxide-covered object, and their eyes widen as they behold an ancient iron ox goad. It's black tarnished shaft inlaid with archaic letters of gleaming gold. With a swift and forceful motion, Jesus drives the point downward into the cedar tabletop. The elders of the Sanhedrin stare in awe. One of them cocks his head to rent to read the inlaid inscription. Elohim, he whispers. Kaiphas snaps. Nonsense. He reaches out to seize the shaft of the artifact. But his hand trembles as if stricken with palsy. He quickly withdraws it, which crafty mutters. Jesus reaches out and easily retrieves the relic, which he again wraps in oxide. When I and my wife, Princess Mary, return to Jerusalem, we will cleanse the house of our holy father and mother and restore the laws of old. The elders all turn to argue with each other, and when they look up, Jesus is gone. And to their further wonderment, the elders saw that there was no wound in the cedar tabletop where the ox crowed had been lodged. And thus ends the saga of Shamgar. I want to make a little bit of a commentary on this uh, for those of you who are who stayed with us and are wondering just how much of this is really is in the Bible. Actually, all of the events and the and the, the horrible things that happen and all are all in the Book of Judges. We we uh, used a lot of uh, license in changing uh, the various events and uh, combining characters and what have you, as you'll realize if you read the Book of Judges. And I would like to mention this: that it is very very probable that the Book of Judges was actually written by Ezra over in during the Babylonian captivity. It was, or, or if you want to say rewritten, because he rewrote the whole, he rewrote the whole Old Testament uh, to support the, uh, uh, to support the, uh, the Judeans returning from captivity uh, with the support of Cyrus to take over all of Palestine. And, uh, and some of us think that, the book of Judges 
was written uh, to intimidate, to intimidate the um, the Canaanites and the Samaritans and the other uh, and the other Palestinians, uh, and and, uh, and and when you read the Book of Judges, when you read it, you read all of these terrible. These terrible things that happened, all of the, the human sacrifice and the cannibalism and, the, and all the awful things that, that occur, uh, you kind of you, you you kind of get that idea. Uh, these the the the, the uh, old saying that that uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom was what they were trying to uh, they were trying to definitely get across. They wanted. They wanted uh, everyone, all the Canaanites, the, the so-called lost tribes, they wanted them to fear, to fear Jehovah, to fear the vengeance, to fear being stoned and, 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 uh, and, and being otherwise, otherwise terrorized. And so uh, we, we present Shamgar, Somewhat from the Phoenician and Canaanite uh, point of view, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully we we'll, we can publish it, and we and we have we have artwork and and and, uh, and, and more extensive commentary. Now, um, not next week, but I would want to announce that on the seventeenth of August we're going to be uh, hopefully have uh, Bill Nastiel on as a guest, and we'll be reviewing we'll be reviewing his wonderful book, uh, um, Tales of Magic and Enchantment. Uh, yeah, stories of magic and, and, and enchantment from Falcon Press by Bill Nastiel. So we have that to look forward to. And next week we will uh, um, next week we'll probably. Be be dissecting uh, some of the implications of Shamgar and having a having more of a commentary on it. So until then, uh, good magic, and uh, we'll see you next week.